Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of, as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What a blessing and joy it is to be together this Lord's Day. It is always a good day whenever we are able to come into the house of the Lord and reminded of what David said in Psalm 122 and verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. It's always a good thing whenever we are able to separate ourselves from the world for a few moments to dwell on spiritual matters and to associate with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I hope that you've been encouraged so far in our worship unto God together and that we will continue to be encouraged and exhorted as we learn and as we try to appreciate some things that are found in the Word of God this morning. I hope that you will take out your Bibles and be turning to the book of Philippians in the second chapter. We will be studying that context this morning. Philippians chapter 2, I'd encourage you to place uh, a marker there. We will look at a few other passages before we really dig into Philippians chapter 2, but this is going to be serving as our primary text this morning. As we have been engaged throughout this year and our annual theme is looking at the gospel is for all. And what we have been trying to do is appreciate what the gospel is. And we will make some further application as the year continues to progress, Lord willing. But what we are trying to solidify in our mind is what the gospel is. And many people, if you were to ask them what the gospel is, I think they would say, well, it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse 3, when Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. I think they would appeal to this passage and they would say it's the death, burial, and resurrection because of what Paul said at the very first verse of this chapter. When he says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ includes the death, burial, and resurrection. That was what we looked at last month. Some of the benefits that we derive from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we are saved and that we, our sins are atoned and we are justified. Those are some big ideas and big words, but that is what we have derived from the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And the death and resurrection of Christ is of great significance in our faith and understanding of who Jesus is. However, I believe if we stop there and we only consider the death and resurrection of Jesus 
I think we are limiting our understanding of what the gospel is, the fullness or the totality of what the gospel is. Because the gospel would include at least, I believe, one other event in the life of Jesus Christ. And that is His exaltation to the throne of God. To sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, in Acts the first chapter and in verse 9, as Luke is recording, as he is describing the events of whenever Jesus, after He has been raised, He is on the earth and He has been teaching His apostles for 40 days concerning the things about the kingdom of God. And He has been teaching them and then Jesus ascends back into heaven. It says in Acts chapter 1 and in verse 9, And after He had said these things, He was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received Him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while He was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. And so the apostles, they see Jesus leave the earth that He ascends and He goes back into heaven. In chapter 2, in the first Gospel sermon, in Acts chapter 2, and in verse 33, notice what Peter and the apostles are proclaiming that day. It says, therefore, talking about Jesus Christ, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. You might think, what is the exaltation of Jesus really? What does exalted even mean? And that's a good question because the word means to raise to a high point of honor. To raise and to exalt. That we are putting someone in a seat, in a position high above us, that we are submissive to them, that we recognize their authority and their position of power and privilege, and we honor them as such. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. That is part of the Gospel that Peter was proclaiming that day. He had spoken about how Jesus had been crucified and had he, how He had been handed over to Pilate, how He had been killed and how He had raised, been raised from the dead, but He also includes that Jesus was exalted. That is no insignificant thing. And so why is the exaltation of Jesus significant? Is it significant? I think those are some things that we will see in this study this morning. We're just going to look at a few passages this morning. If you want to, you can jot them down. We're going to just look and see what the Scriptures say as we read these passages. We're not going to try to make a lot of comments about these. We're just going to look at what the Word of God says. I think there's great benefit in that from time to time because sometimes you get we can get too worked up on who is saying something and that, oh, that's conjecture, that's opinion. And I don't want us to lose sight of what the Bible is teaching and what God is communicating to us. And so in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 16, after Jesus had 
been raised from the dead, and as, after He had given the great commission to His apostles, it says in Mark chapter 16, and in verse 19, So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, He was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. He was raised to a position to sit at the right hand of God, the Scriptures teach. In Acts chapter 2, and verse 33, as we've just read, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. His exaltation was proclaimed on Pentecost when He was seated at the right hand of God. In Acts chapter 5, in Acts the 5th chapter, in Acts chapter 5 and in verse 31, the apostles, they make this statement, talking about Jesus, how He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a Savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And if there's something that we need to learn and take away about the exaltation of Jesus is that it identifies Him as our Savior, as the one who is able to forgive us of our sins. You think about what these passages are signifying, that Jesus is sitting at God's right hand a position of power, a position of great authority. And he is sitting on David's throne. That is part of what Peter and the apostles were preaching in Acts chapter 2. I believe in the Hebrew writer uses a little bit more colorful language, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, describing the exaltation of Jesus. He doesn't use the word exalted. But he does describe it in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. But we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He has been given glory and honor when he was crowned. That's. Language of exaltation. That He is reigning as our King. And we're beginning to see the significance behind the exaltation of Jesus. I hope so. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, in the book of 1 Timothy in the third chapter, notice what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 16. Paul says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Jesus has been taken up into glory. He's been glorified. He's been honored. Taking this new position of great power and authority as our King. 
And what Paul says, and what I love about this passage, is that this is part of the common confession. That whenever we recognize Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord, and when we make that good confession, that we are recognizing Him as the One who is the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. In the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, in Ephesians chapter 4, as Paul is writing about some of the gifts that Christ has given to His people, His body, the church, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, Paul actually quotes from an Old Testament passages in Psalms. And he says in verse 8, Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. When He ascended on high, when He took that position of exalted glory and power and authority, that is when Jesus secured victory for His people. It wasn't just the cross. It wasn't just the resurrection. It was also including His exaltation. His ascension to on high. And the exaltation of Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. Turn to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 52, we'll look at a few passages in our Old Testaments this morning. In Isaiah chapter 52, notice what Isaiah says as he is describing the servant of God, the Messiah who would come. In Isaiah 52 and in verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. The Messiah. He will be greatly exalted. But there's something about the word exalted that means that there is an implication behind that. And that implication is that someone to be exalted, they have to be lowered, right? They have to be in a lower position if they're going to be lifted up. And you go ahead and you read Isaiah 53, and it describes the humble servant who is lowered and who dies. We'll come back to that thought in just a little bit. But I want to go ahead and plant that seed for you to think about. Turn over to Psalm 2. The second Psalm. In Psalm 2 and in verse 5, notice what David writes here. In Psalm 2 and in verse 5, he's talking about the Messiah, and He says, Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for Me, I have installed My King upon Zion, My holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to Me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me, and I will surely give the nations as Your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as Your possession. God has anointed His Son as King. He has... Put him on the throne. In Psalm 110, a passage that goes in harmony with what 
is being taught there in Psalm 2. In Psalm 110, in Psalm 110 and in verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, that is David's Lord, Yahweh says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This passage is quoted several times in the, Old, or in the New Testament and applied to Jesus and how He is the one who is our King. He is the one who is sitting on the throne of God. The exaltation of Jesus is fulfilled, fulfills these Old Testament prophecies about Him. But now I want us to turn back to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, the passage that we're going to be spending the rest of our time examining this morning, as we heard in our reading, in verse 5 it says, "...had this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus." who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." That's the story that we're familiar with, isn't it? That God sent His Son to this earth to die for us. We're familiar with that side of the story, if you will. And I call it a side because there's a second side or a second part to the story. But we're very familiar with the story of Jesus and the Gospel story as we would call it. In that there is this downward trajectory that Jesus, who was in the form of God, He did not hold on to that as something to be grasped, but He emptied Himself. Notice the verbs in this passage. That in verse 7, He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant. could have put that up here. I didn't have enough room on the chart. But... He became a servant, the one who demands and deserves worship. He becomes a servant. God, Jesus, He humbled Himself to become obedient. The one who should be obeyed became obedient. And it ends in death. The death of the cross. That's the Gospel story as we're very familiar with, isn't it? We know that part of the story. And that is certainly taking Jesus who existed in heaven and who was here during the creation of the world and is the Creator. And now He has humbled Himself to die an excruciating and painful death. But there's something about the exaltation that offers a, a second side of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. 
there is the rest of the story that we cannot neglect. Because the rest of the story is extremely important. It does not end in death. It does not end in this downward trajectory. It ends with Jesus being exalted. He is exalted, it says in verse 9. Notice what Paul says, For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And if we don't include the exaltation of Jesus, we're only getting half of the gospel message and the gospel story. That there is a second part. There is this upward trajectory. After we see the humiliation of Jesus, after we see His death, and even His resurrection, because He has ascended and has been placed at God's right hand after He has been exalted, He has been given a name above every name. He is deserving of our worship that we would confess Him as our Lord and as our King. That we would bow down and bow the knee to Him. That's the fullness of the story of Jesus. Because what you see here is that God is the one who exalts Him. And in verse 11, there is this statement, to the glory of God the Father. You think about the Gospel. And we many times, and correctly so, we call it the Gospel of Jesus Christ, don't we? Because it is the Gospel, the good news about what Jesus Christ has done. But there's another completely accurate statement about the Gospel. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, as Paul begins this epistle, in Romans chapter 1 and in verse 1, as Paul sets out to introduce himself, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. How many times do we call the gospel the gospel of God? Probably not as much as we call it the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? When we include the gospel, the exaltation as part of the gospel, it completes that story, but it also connects the gospel back to the plan of God the Father. Because notice in Philippians 2, it's really interesting. If you look at verses 6 through 8, the verbs are all what Jesus does, right? He is the one who humbles Himself. He is the one who obeys. He's the one who has emptied Himself. It's all about what Jesus has done. Praise be to God. But then notice in verse 9, the verbs 
And the one who is the active in our verbs, you know, if you want to talk about active and passive verbs, look at who's the one who's acting. Look at the one who's the actor. In verse 9, for this reason, God highly exalted him. Who's the one doing the ex- exalting? It's God, the Father. The Father exalts the Son. Jesus is the passive recipient of the exaltation. The exaltation of Jesus, it brings God the Father back into the story of the Gospel. And then it connects the story of Jesus and what Jesus did to the story and the plan of what God has in store. And you see that it's consistent throughout in verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And because of the actions of Jesus, because of His obedience, because of His willingness to go to the cross and to die for us, God the Father is exalted to the glory of God the Father, Paul says in verse 11. That when we recognize Jesus as our King and we praise Him, when we worship Him, the plan of God that was before the foundation of the world, that is fulfilled and completed. When we obey Christ, we honor Christ, but we also honor the Father. And it's the Father who is glorified by the obedience and the exaltation of His Son. It restores the fact that the Gospel is not just one-sided or that it's only about Jesus. It is also about God and His infinite plan and wisdom. And since Jesus has been exalted, it demands only one proper response. That is submission to the King. End of story. That's it. Because God has seen the obedience of His Son, His willingness to go to the cross, because God has placed Him at the right hand of God. There's only one true, proper response for you and for me. That is, we give our life to the King. We bow the knee to Christ. We submit to Him. Every knee will bow. He says in verse 10, verse 10, some may not do so voluntarily, in this life. Some may refuse to submit to the King. But as you've probably heard it said, on the day of judgment, there will be no atheists. There will be no atheists in hell. Because everyone is going to come to acknowledge that Jesus is the King. It will just be too late. Now, while you have 
the choice. You need to submit to the King. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We will honor Him as our King and as our Lord. One way or another. We need to submit to Him and to His law and to His Gospel. Sometimes people tend to frown upon the word obedience. The Greek word obedience is upakau. And it is a compound word. The prefix upa, it means to get below or to get under. I find that really interesting. And kao is the word for listen or hear. Obedience is literally to get below what you hear. To do what you are told. Isn't that what every parent tells their child? (laughs) Do what you're told. And when we say that, we mean you obey me. That's what submission and obedience is. That we do what the King has told us. We do what God has told us. Obedience is submission to do what we are told. That is it. It's so simple, isn't it? And yet there are people in the religious world and among people who would identify themselves as Christians, they think obedience somehow is you trying to earn your salvation. It's the furthest thing from that. Obedience does not bring myself any glory. Obedience is me just saying, I'm here to do what the King tells me to do. Obedience doesn't save myself. It glorifies and honors the One whom I'm trying to obey. Just as in Jesus, when He was obedient to the point of death, who was glorified? God was glorified. God was honored. When we do what God has said, He is honored. He is honored because we have listened to Him and we have done what He has said. And so whenever we would use the phrase when we obey the Gospel, we use that terminology quite frequently, don't we? When, we, when someone obeys the Gospel, we glorify God. We're not trying to save ourselves. But we glorify God just as Christ through His obedience glorified God. And if we want to glorify God, we can do so in precisely the same way that Jesus did. And this is what I love about the story of the Gospel. Is that it's not just something that we say. It's something that we embody. It's something that we live out. And we follow the actions of Jesus. And this is not all too foreign, is it? Because remember what Jesus did? He went to the cross. He died for you and for me. And what did Jesus tell us that we must do if we're going to be a a follower of His, a disciple? 
Remember in Luke chapter 14? In Luke chapter 14 and in verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We must take up our cross and we must bear our cross. While Jesus had a literal cross to bear, we might have a spiritual or metaphorical cross that we have to bear. But that is part and parcel of being a disciple. And if it wasn't too lowly for Jesus to bear His cross, then it's not too lowly for you and for me. And Jesus took that cross and He was crucified. He died hanging upon that cross. Now I find the language that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 2 to be very powerful. In Galatians chapter 2 and in verse 20, notice what Paul says here. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And He has joined Himself with Christ at the cross. The cross that we are to bear. He says, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. The question might be, how are we crucified with Christ? How do we take up this cross? How do we join Christ to be crucified with Him. I think Paul gives us a really good answer in the next chapter, in chapter 3 of Galatians. He talks about how we are added to Christ and we are clothed with Christ when we are baptized into Him. Paul talks about the significance of baptism in Romans chapter 6 as well. In Romans chapter 6 and in verse 3, let this language, let this... Let us notice it. He says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. You see the beauty of what the Gospel is? That you are invited to come and to follow Jesus as a disciple of Jesus Christ. You take up your cross and you follow Him. Where did Jesus go with His cross? He went to Golgotha. He went and died. For you and for me, we need to take up our cross and we need to crucify the old man of sin. We need to put Him to death.
And when we do that, we can look at Jesus. And just as He was buried and was raised on the third day, when we crucify that old man of sin, we bury him in the waters of baptism, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. We are raised to walk in new life with Him. And as Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter 2, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 11, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. And if we are found to be faithful, just as Jesus was exalted, you and I will have our day of exaltation where we will be honored when the King comes to take us home. The exaltation of Jesus invites you to become a part of the Gospel. To become a full participant with Jesus. Being a follower of Christ will mean that you must take up your cross. Be baptized. To be united with Him in His death and in His resurrection. Will you come to the waters of baptism to be saved by the blood of Jesus? Praise God that He is that Jesus Christ is our King and that He has been exalted. That's the story of the Gospel that we must never neglect. This morning, if you need to become a child of God, we want to encourage you and give you an opportunity to come to have your sins washed away to become a child of God. Maybe it is that you have made that commitment in the past, but you've not been living faithfully. You've gone back into the world. You've allowed sin and temptation to ensnare you. Will you not come back? We want to encourage you. We want to offer you comfort. We want to help pray with you and for you that God might be merciful and forgive you. If we can help you in some way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?